We're continuing this morning our message series, Many Parts, One Story. This is week three of the message series. Week number one, we talked about how when God created the earth, he not only created it good, but he actually created it very good. And then last week, we took a look at the fall. And with the fall, we saw that what was very good became pretty good. Um, and we talked about that there's a difference between, a significant difference between very good and pretty good. What we're gonna see this week is that we go from very good to pretty good at the fall, but by the time we get to what we're gonna look at today, it gets pretty bad. Um, and what we're gonna look at today is, is a very catastrophic story. It is the most catastrophic event that has happened in human history uh, before it ever happened and ever since it happened. Um, we were familiar with catastrophic events, even in human history. If you think of like the Black Plague in, in Europe uh, during the Middle Ages, half of Europe died. And back then that was like some 50 million people. Um, if you think about World War II, somewhere between 70 and 85 million people died during World War II. Uh, but both of those events pale in comparison to the catastrophic event that we're gonna look at this morning because this morning we're going to take a look at the flood. And the flood actually starts in Genesis chapter 7, but we're going to look at a little background first from Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. And it says this, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord had regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. And his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created. And with them, the animals and the birds and the creatures that move along the ground, because I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the Lord's eyes. I talked about how at creation it was very good and then at the fall it becomes pretty good. But from the time of the fall to the time of the flood, like a boulder that starts rolling down a mountainside, it starts off kind of slow, but the further it rolls, the quicker it picks up speed. And that's what's happening with, with sin on the earth. We, we have sin at the fall, but it doesn't become out of control until, uh, you know, as we move through time and, and, and get towards the flood, also, the wickedness is, is just so great that what was pretty good becomes pretty awful. But there was someone by the name of Noah that didn't fit the mold. He was different than the rest. And he caught the eyes of the Lord. Let's look at the, the story of Noah. Genesis 6, 9 to 22. Now, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man blameless amongst the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. And he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people of the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people." For the earth is filled with violence because of them, and I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms on it and coat it with pitch inside and out. And this is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 
50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening of one cubit high all the way around. And put a door on the side of the ark and make make it with a lower and a middle and an upper deck. For I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all the life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. And Noah did everything the Lord God had commanded him. Now, as we go through that and I read that, it's, it's really hard to appreciate what God's asking Noah to do. Ultimately, God's asking Noah to build something that is 51 stories long, you know, 510 feet long, and something that would take 100 years to build. And so, fortunately, in our lifetime, uh, that, that ark has been rebuilt to scale in Kentucky, and we got a picture of it up there on the screen. And you can see how incredibly mammoth that wooden boat was that God called Noah to make. Interestingly enough, in the announcements in the bulletin, and I didn't mention it because it's not going to be until July, but there's going to be a group of people from Light of the World that are going to go up there and and, uh, visit the Ark exhibit. I've heard it's uh, quite incredible. So this is what God tells Noah to build. Let's continue with the story, Genesis 7, 1 through 11. Then the Lord God said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, male and its mate. And also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. For seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and for 40 nights. And I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. And Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Now pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all the creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, On that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and all the floodgates of heaven were opened, and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and for 40 nights. You know, what's interesting about that section of of Scripture is this, is that once Noah's on the boat, it takes seven days before God has the rains fall. Like, why, why is he on the boat for seven days before the rain falls? I mean, the scripture doesn't say. I'm sure there are things to do and to get ready. But what is interesting that it is in seven days that God creates the earth. 
six days and then he rests on the seventh, but we speak of the, the seven days of creation. And once he's on the boat in seven days, God is going to destroy the earth. And once he's on the boat and the rains come for 40 days and 40 nights, that's not the end of it. It's actually a long process because the whole earth becomes flooded. And once it does, that boat is floating for like around... Um, seven months or so, or, or maybe actually, as I think about it, um, probably more like nine months. Because after about nine months, it, 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 land, it grounds itself on Mount Ararat, and then it takes another three months once it's like sitting on the ground for the waters to recede enough that, that he can let the animals out. How does Noah know when it's time? Well, he starts off by putting a raven and setting a raven out. And that raven's just like flying around and he's, 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 he's staying above the boat and, and, and is not finding any place to land. And so then Noah waits another week or so. And after another week, he sends out a dove. And that dove that he sends out flies around for a while, but that dove comes back. There's no place to, for it to really go. And then he waits another week and he sends that dove out again. Now, this time he, he returns, but he actually returns with like a green leaf, a fig leaf in its mouth. And he waits another week. And when he sends it out then uh, that last week, then the bird doesn't return. Noah knows that, that he can now open the doors and let the animals off the ark. Once the animals come off the ark, the first thing that Noah does is he offers a sacrifice to God. And God gives him permission to eat meat. Now, what we don't know is like if people were eating meat before then, uh, but we do know this is that God doesn't give permission for them to eat meat until after the flood. Because when God created Adam and Eve, um, they, they, they were to eat the, the fruits of the field. They were basically to be vegetarians. And honestly, so were the animals. But obviously with the fall, everything changed. So that all may have changed for everyone, but God doesn't expressly give permission to eat meat now until after they come off the boat at the time of the flood. And then God gives a, a sign to Noah and to humanity, and it's the rainbow. Look at Genesis 9, 12 to 16. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come, for I've set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and the living creatures of every kind on the earth. Now, the first thing that I want to mention about the text is this, is that God doesn't wipe out sin with the flood. He does set wickedness back, right? Like the earth had become extremely wicked and with the flood, he cleanses that to a sense, but he doesn't wipe out sin because sin is something that's passed down from generation to generation from, from Adam and Eve to their children to their children and Noah has it and his kids have it. So sin returns relatively quickly once they get off the boat because we're told that once they get off the boat, Noah goes and he plants a vineyard. And when that vineyard produces fruit, Noah's still probably reeling from the you know, year on the boat. 
and he decides to make, you know, a little wine with it, drinks too much wine. In fact, he drinks so much wine that his kid finds him asleep, buck naked in the tent, passed out. And he doesn't do anything about it. He just goes to his two brothers and says, you know what? Dad is passed out drunk in the tent and he's naked. And so the other two brothers are mortified to hear this. They don't dare want to look upon their father's nakedness and who really does. And, and so they walk in backwards into the tent, two of them holding like a blanket across their shoulders as they walk in backwards so that they don't look upon their father's nakedness. And they set the, the blanket down upon uh, their father Noah. Well, when Noah, you know, wakes up and, and, and finds out what happens the next day or whenever it was, uh, he's not really happy with, with his younger son, uh, Ham, who is the one that, that, that didn't do anything about his nakedness. In fact, he basically puts a curse on his son, Ham, and says that you're going to be a servant to your other two brothers. And what's interesting then is Ham has four kids, and one of those kids has the name Canaan, who becomes the father of the Canaanites. Now, if you want to fast forward in the story, what's going to happen is Shem, who becomes the father of the Semites, of, of the people of Israel, what do they do? They ultimately kick out and destroy all the Canaanites that are living in the land, fulfilling then the curse of Noah over Ham for what he did when he found him passed out naked in the tent. Some interesting facts about the story that we read in the Bible is, you know, this isn't a myth. I mean, this is actually, it literally happened. Uh, and the first thing that you need to take, a, take note of is this, the boat could float, okay? And, and what's amazing about the fact that this boat can actually float as it's described in the Bible is we've got Moses describing us the dimensions of the boat, uh, which is very interesting because like on the days of creation, the Bible's not real specific, but with the boat, uh, the ark, it's very specific, just almost like in the temple of the Lord, it's very specific in terms of dimensions. And, and this is something that Moses recorded about 1,500 years before the time of Christ. So what that means is this story as it's written is 3,500 years old. Old. But it's being recounted of something that happened three or four thousand years earlier. So somehow, seven thousand years ago, they knew how to build a wooden boat that is about, it's recognized as large as you can build a wooden boat and it still work and it still float. And, and they did it to proportions that actually do float. It's the size of a boat that has only been you know, surpassed by modern times. Yet this is like something that they knew how to do 7,000 years ago. Why? Because God told them how. 10 years ago, there was four physics graduate students from the University of Leicester in England who actually, they published a peer-reviewed paper that demonstrated that, in fact, the boat would float. I mean, according to the laws of physics, yeah, it, it works. It's about as big as you can build a wooden structure and it worked, but, but it works. And they were surprised, they said, to find that it actually did float according to its dimensions because they said that, you know, they don't really see the Bible as a scientific book. So the boat itself is a floatable structure. The other thing that's interesting is that we find stories of the flood all across the world. 
in every corner of the world, every, almost all civilizations and, and most religions even, people will have stories of a great flood. In fact, as I was getting ready for this message, I researched like all the different flood stories and I counted at least 70 different flood stories that cover the earth. And those flood stories come from Native Americans. Those flood stories come from places like Egypt, places like Africa, places like Asia. Literally every corner of the globe has flood stories. Now, how can that be? Well, it's because apparently there was this catastrophic flood that, that after it happened, it's been passed down across human history regardless of what part of the world you're living in. It, it happened. The boat floats and everyone has a flood story, basically. Now, there's some things about the flood that, that we believe that we probably shouldn't, and, and I want to cover those too. And, and the first is this, that, that, you know, we oftentimes think of the flood as being like this cute little children's story. And I think that affects how we understand and how we read the story of the flood. Listen, this is a catastrophic event that like never has humanity seen it or comprehended it, nor could we even comprehend it in our day because we've never seen anything like it. But, but what we do is we paint this picture of, of this being really a story of this like happy old man that's kind of like a zookeeper who's kind of just watching some animals on a boat. And so what? We paint it on our kids' nursery wall. We, we, we put it in the children's Bibles, and it's so cute. Ah, Noah, the boat, the animals, and so forth. And it looks something like this. I mean, he doesn't he look like a happy zookeeper? And I mean, look at those animals. I mean, those tigers up top, they look pretty friendly. But here's what you're not seeing. You're not seeing thousands of bloated, floating corpses under the ark from all the people that have died and all the animals have died and just how like massive this destruction is. And once again, I think it affects how we actually understand and see what God did. Because, I mean, it's not really a, 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 a children's story. It's a story of God's wrath and God's judgment. And the second thing, and this is gonna blow some of your minds, but I promise you, it's true. And you're not gonna believe me and right away you're gonna start researching this, but I'm telling you, I'm right. There's no evidence from the Bible that anyone was mocking Noah while he built the boat. Right, right now, some of you are reaching for your phone and you're gonna Google it. Go ahead. We always, if we don't see the picture of the ark with a happy zookeeper and the happy animals floating, the other picture we'll see is people like raising their fists at the ark and pointing and mocking at Noah and so forth. Maybe they did. But it doesn't say they did in the Bible. I, I don't even know how many people saw Noah building the ark. It's not like he's building this in his backyard in, in a big city. In fact, cities really don't come till after the flood. It comes after, after the flood and the Tower of Babel and stuff like that. Then people are kind of gathered into their groups and are kind of like building cities. So Noah's got his 10,000 acres, his 100,000 acres, whatever. That's where he's getting the wood from. You know, and, and, and maybe some people on occasion are seeing what he's doing, but it's not like there's just crowds gathered around mocking him for, you know, 100 years. Scripture doesn't talk about it that way. You know why I think... We, this is why I think that like 
the children's books in, in the way that we were always taught where we think that they were mocking Noah, here's why I think we're taught that. Because if they're making fun of Noah, if they're mocking Noah, then we don't feel bad when they die. Right? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, if they're not mocking them, we do feel kind of bad for them. But if they're mocking them, that's their own fault. And I think that's just kind of why we tell the story that way. But you're not going to find it that way in the Bible. I said, ultimately, this is a story about God's judgment. And I don't want to get into too much of it because the sermon series is many parts, one story. Well, the last part of the story is Christ's return when he's going to judge the earth. But I have to touch on it here because the Bible connects the judgment in the days of Noah to the judgment at the end of the world. Look at Matthew 24, 36 to 41. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, not even the Son, but only the Father. For as it was written in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they didn't know anything about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And this is how it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken. The other will be left. Two women will be grinding the handmill. One will be taken and the other will be left. Now, the first thing I want to say is this, is it makes this comparison that when Jesus comes, it's going to be like in the days of Noah. People are going to just be going through life, but life's going to be wicked. People are going to be eating, drinking, just going on. They're not going to be noticing the boat. They're not going to be making fun of Noah. They're just too busy being self-absorbed in their self-absorbed lives. And Christ is going to return and, and, and judgment is going to happen. So we need to be aware that, that the Lord is going to return and we need to be prepared for that return. That, that's the first thing I want to say about it. The second thing is this. If I really threw you off on the comment that, that I said the Bible doesn't talk about anyone mocking Noah, I'm going to really throw you off on this. People like to quote this text to say, see, there's a rapture. Mm -mm. No, you can't. And I'm going to show you why. In fact, when you're bored this afternoon, here's what I want you to do. I want you to Google Bible passages that talk about the rapture. And then if you find some, I want you to send them to me. Because there, there, there's one that potentially could be seen that way from 1 Thessalonians 4, and we'll talk about that in week 11 of the series. But let's look at this passage. It says in verse 39 that when Noah entered the ark, they, the people that are eating and drinking and, and doing all their wickedness, knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came. And look at what word it uses. Took them away. Okay? The flood takes them away. What does it mean that the flood takes them away? Can we agree it means it kills them? Noah stays. The rest are taken away. Their life's taken. I mean, right? Can it be understood any other way? I mean, God killed all lives. Can it be understood any other way? Come on, give me an answer. No. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be when Jesus comes. Two will be in the field, one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding a handmill, one will be taken and the other will be left. If you read this in context, you don't want to be taken. This isn't about rapture, it's about your life's going to be taken. When Christ returns, the wicked are going to be sent off to hell. 
You can't, re, you can't swap the meaning of taken. When it's making a comparison between in the days of Noah, so it will be in the son of man, taken means taken and left means left. If they went like that, then we wouldn't know what it was saying. So you can't use this passage to justify your view on it. That's why we always have to read scripture in context. Because when you pull it out of context, it's easy to be like, see, take it and left behind, you know, and you write a whole novel and a series and all this other stuff on it, but that's not what the text actually says. It's interesting when we read this, this section of scripture, we see that God has regrets that he even made mankind. Look at this, Genesis 6, 6. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. The Lord regretted making man. What do we do with that passage? How does the Lord regret doing something? Didn't he know in his divine knowledge that this would ultimately happen? I mean, we have to answer yes to that because there's prophecy in scripture, which means God's able to see the future and he knows what's gonna happen and he tells us what's gonna happen. So he must've known this was gonna happen. So this is either a figure, you know, a figure of speech or, or it's being used to that even though he knew it was gonna be happen, it was grieving him to see it happen. But the important thing that we need to note, note about this is when the Lord regrets something happening, the Lord does something about it. Let me say that again. When the Lord regrets something happening, he does something about it. What does he do? Well, he destroys the earth, which seems a little harsh, but what we're going to see in a moment is it's actually the salvation of mankind. And so my challenge to all of us here is, you know, what do we do with our regrets? You know, for most of us, you know, we just feel sorry for ourselves. A lot of us will beat up on ourselves with our own regrets. I should have done this differently. I should have done that differently. A lot of us, you know, will sit there and we'll keep doing the same stuff over and over and over, even though we regret we do it. How about this? If the Lord does something about his regret, what if, like, rather than sitting in our regrets, we actually do something about it? If you're regretting how you treated someone, you know what, why don't you go and try to make that situation right? Isn't that what Zacchaeus does in the Bible? The guy that, you know, is a tax collector that's robbing from people? You know, he says, you know what, when Jesus comes, he says, whoever I've stolen from, I'm gonna get four times whatever I took. He's doing something about his regret. If you woke up this morning or yesterday morning with a hangover and you regret it, here, how about do something about it? Don't drink so much next time. If you regretted dropping out of school, hey, guess what? Go back to school then. Sit and whine, stop whining about it. Do something about it. Go back to school. And sometimes we have regrets about things we can't go back and fix and we can't do anything about. Oh, yes, we can. You know what you can do? Forgive yourself. That's doing something because God already has. So many of us are held captive by our regrets. No, you don't have to be held captive about, by your regrets. Do something about it. God did. Another thing that I think we can take from this story is this, that we have to obey God even when he asks us to do things that do not make sense. Now, there's some debate on whether or not it actually ever rained before the time of the flood. I tend to think it probably did, but the Bible doesn't say one way or the other. We do not hear of it raining before the flood, and we do hear of it raining at the flood, but just because the Bible doesn't talk about it before doesn't mean it doesn't happen, right? But if you're one who doesn't believe it did rain before the flood, think about how crazy this is that God's asking Noah to build a 51-story 
boat, five, you know, 510 feet long because flood's coming. And especially if like Nora had never even seen rain, there's nothing about that that makes sense. And this is going to take a hundred years of your life. And I, I mean, even though it doesn't make sense though, what does it say of Noah? It says Noah did everything just as the Lord had commanded. Even though it didn't make sense. But you know what? Sometimes God asks us to do things that don't make sense, doesn't he? Sometimes he asks us to do hard things, but are we willing to do it? Sometimes he asks us to do uncomfortable things, but are we willing to do it? Sometimes he's going to ask us to do painful things, but are you willing to do it even if it's painful? Sometimes he's going to ask us to do lonely things, but are you willing to do it even if it's lonely? And sometimes he may even ask us to do impossible things, kind of like he did for Noah. And are you willing to do it? What would you have done if God had asked you, if God asked you today, you know what, to build this ark that's gonna take a a super long time, a big part of your life, and it doesn't make any sense, would you be willing to do it? I don't think most of us will, because honestly, like we don't really trust him or or, or follow him or believe him when he says, listen, give give me a tenth of all that you have. And we're like, ooh, no, that's, that's asking a lot, God. You know, when he calls for us to uh, hold to his teachings on morality, we, we struggle with that. We're not willing to give up drugs or, or porn. We're not even willing to clean up our language or stop gossiping. Listen, if we aren't willing to do those things, how are we going to be willing to go build a 510-foot boat that takes up a good part of our lives? You see, what we see in the story, though, is obedience is a powerful thing, isn't it? You know, Noah is declared righteous by God. He's the only one in all of humanity that's righteous. What makes him righteous? I don't know. I mean, he's probably following the the laws and the statutes of God. And you're like, wait, no, the laws didn't come to later. I mean, I get that. But we're also told that that God's law is written on our heart. So he's being faithful to God, following in in God's ways. uh, but, But he's also doing what God's asking him to do when it doesn't even make sense. And so he's declared righteous by God because he obeys God. And so in the end, what? God saves humanity by this righteous man, Noah, through a wooden boat called the ark. God saves humanity through a righteous man, Noah, in this, this wooden boat, this ark. If, if God hadn't done that, all of humanity would have been wiped out. You and I wouldn't have been here. But you see, Noah is a type of Christ that's going to come. In other words, when we look at Noah, what he does is he gives us a glimpse, a little image of of what God's going to do later in history through the person Jesus Christ. Because in the same way that God saved the world through this righteous man, Noah, and and a wooden boat, the ark, God is ultimately going to save humanity through this righteous man, Jesus Christ, and a wooden cross that he died on. Because Jesus is the righteous one of God who is obedient, even in a greater way than Noah, obedient to death on a cross. Obedience is a powerful thing. In what ways are you good at being obedient to God? What ways are you being obedient right now? And in what ways could you be more obedient? And you have to work on your obedience. The last thing I want to say about this text is that in this, we see that the rainbow has become hijacked in our current generation. 
you know, God gives the rainbow at the end of the flood is a sign of his mercy, is a sign of his promise that, that despite the wickedness of the earth, I'm never gonna flood the earth again and destroy all life. And it's a little ironic that we take this sign that God gives uh, of God's holiness and, and God's mercy and so forth, and we replace it with uh, th- that, that same symbol, but now is a sign of wickedness. Because, you know, with the, the adopting of the rainbow with the LGBTQ and, and all of that stuff, th- this is stuff that brought judgment from God down in the Old Testament. It's seen as wickedness. We see it in Sodom and Gomorrah. So we, we take this symbol from God of his purity and, and of his mercy and, and that he's never going to destroy the, the world by, by flood and we replace it with the wickedness of man. And though God promises that he'll never destroy the, the world again by flood, we are told he will destroy it one day by fire. Look at 2 Peter 3, 3 to 10. For scoffers will come in the last days and they're gonna scoff. They're gonna be following their own sinful desires. They're gonna say, where's this promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they have from the very beginning. And for they deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and it was through the water by the word of God. And by that means that the world existed was ultimately deluged with water and died. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exists are stored up for what? Fire. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And it's not that the Lord is slow to fulfill his promises. Some would recognize slowness. But what God's really doing is he's patient with you. He's not wanting anyone perish, but he wants what? All to repent. That's, that's why we, we did the confession before communion. That's, that's why we, I talked about that on Ash Wednesday. And, and I say that the church never talks about repentance anymore. We have to talk about repentance. We should be in daily repentance before God. But ultimately, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, just like in the days of Noah. And the heavens are going to pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done and it will be exposed. We see in the story of the flood that the wickedness of mankind comes face to face with the judgment of God. We see also that from the time of of the fall, what was very good becomes pretty good and becomes extremely wicked. After the time of the flood that's restored in a sense, uh, as much as it can be with the fall of sin. And what what we see and we're told that throughout scripture that the closer and closer and closer we get to the end times, the wickedness is going to increase. And once again, mankind's wickedness will face the judgment of God. In the days of Noah, it was a righteous man named Noah and his wooden boat that saved humanity. In our day, it's the righteous man, Jesus Christ, and his wooden cross that does so. And for that, we turn to for our hope. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious Almighty God, we just thank and praise you for, uh, for this day to be able to look at these words as it was in the days of Noah. And I pray, merciful God, that as we live in these end times, that we wouldn't be like the people of Noah, just living oblivious to uh, the wickedness of the times in which we live. 
And that in the same way, merciful God, you saved humanity through your righteous one, Noah, and his wooden boat, gracious God, we turn to you and we look to you to save us from our own wickedness and the wickedness of this world through your son who you sent to die on that wooden cross for us. Um, we thank you for that gift and we pray, gracious God, that you'd help us to live to, uh, for him and, uh, and just desiring to follow him in all of our ways in whatever days we have left. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray, amen.